Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Crisis Watch Kingston. I'm your host, Sebastian Valancourt, and today on the show, I thought it necessary to somewhat pause our ongoing conversations about the housing crisis. I say somewhat because we're not really going to be putting it aside, but just for this month, I think it's really important that we talk a little about COVID-19, and specifically the new Omicron variant, which has contributed in a major way to the currently record-high number of COVID cases we're seeing here in Kingston. As I'm sure many of you are already well aware, over the past three months or so, cases in Kingston have been soaring. In October, cases jumped out of the single digits and hovered for a while around the 30 active cases mark. That's roughly one case for every 5,000 people. In November, cases began to steadily rise into the hundreds. Some listeners may remember me citing 300 active cases in last month's episode, which works out to roughly one case for every 500 people. And now, while I record this month's episode at the end of December, there are nearly 1,600 active cases of COVID-19 in the KFLNA region. That's roughly one case for every 88 people. As I've mentioned before on this show, Kingston has been fairly fortunate during this pandemic. I say this not to minimize the impact that the virus has had on our community, but instead to illustrate how severe that impact has become today. Despite having very encouraging vaccination numbers, at approximately 90% of adults having received two doses, with an additional 80,000 or so people having received a third dose, which... By the way, if you haven't made a plan to get your third dose yet, I highly recommend you do, if for no other reason than to minimize the effects that COVID-19 may have on you if exposed. But clearly, simply asking everyone to get vaccinated has not been the ultimate solution that many politicians and people in the media have suggested it might be. The next question I feel we're left with then is, why not? Why haven't vaccines been enough to stop or even limit the spread of COVID-19 in Canada and in Kingston? Well, there are a few reasons. First, it's important to understand what a virus is. There is much debate within the scientific community about the status of viruses as living things. While a virus is not composed of cells like other living things, they are incapable of creating their own energy, instead taking its energy from a living host. Viruses are still able to replicate themselves, adapt to different environments, and most importantly to today's discussion, they can evolve. It is these evolved forms of original viruses that we call variants. Like in other living things, evolution is a process of natural selection. As the virus replicates itself in new environments, different mutations develop in the virus, causing it to behave differently. Of course, this doesn't always benefit the virus. Variants can develop which are less infectious, that replicate at lower rates. However, these variants, for obvious reasons, are going to be less successful and die out faster than their counterparts that develop higher rates of infection and replicate faster. What makes the Omicron variant so unique and so well-suited to environments such as we have here in Kingston is that despite having milder symptoms, it is far more resilient against vaccines. This means the virus can go unnoticed in the host for much longer before symptoms become severe, if they become severe at all. And so, for a city like Kingston, where up until recently cases have been low and outbreaks few and far between, occurring mostly in isolated communities such as long-term care facilities and prisons, where people have felt comfortable interacting without masks when visiting friends and family or talking with people outside, where the vaccination rates have always been high, we have essentially created the ideal breeding grounds for variants like Omicron. And so, today on Crisis Watch Kingston, we're going to be looking into how and why this could have been avoided, exploring the decisions that led us down this path, and hopefully, along the way, getting a little glimpse into what exactly the future has in store for us.
So far, we've talked a little bit about why the Omicron variant is so well suited to environments like Kingston, but to really understand how we got here, we have to delve into how and where the variant came to be. First identified in South Africa and reported to the World Health Organization on November 24, 2021, the Omicron variant quickly spread throughout the rest of the world, first to the Israeli settlements in occupied Palestine, then to Asia, the EU, and of course, North America. In the overwhelming majority of cases, Omicron was able to spread to other countries as people traveling for recreational purposes returned home carrying the virus. Very quickly, many of these nations began implementing travel restrictions, preventing people from entering their countries from South Africa. However, for reasons we'll get into shortly, the creation and rapid spread of the variant has far less to do with South Africans vacationing in Europe, and far more to do with the opposite. For this next section, I'm going to be quoting heavily from an article published on theconversation.com titled, Are New COVID Variants Like Omicron Linked to Low Vaccine Coverage? Here's what the science says. And as is the case for any article I mention on the show, I highly recommend that you give it a read for yourself and develop your own ideas. The article starts off by saying, and I quote, The emergence of a new SARS-CoV-2 variant of concern, Omicron, has reignited global discussions of vaccine distribution, virus mutation, and immunity against new virus strains. Some experts have suggested the emergence of a new strain could be the result of low levels of vaccine coverage in developing nations. While only a few SARS-CoV-2 viruses are needed to cause an infection, replication of the virus in the lungs is explosive. Millions of virus particles are eventually produced, and some of these viruses are then exhaled to infect other hosts. Importantly, the process of duplicating the virus's RNA is imperfect. Eventually, errors will accumulate in the growing pool of viruses, causing what we refer to as virus variants. Over the course of the pandemic, this has occurred several times. The original SARS-CoV-2 virus that emerged from Wuhan in 2019 was later replaced by a variant called D614G, followed by the Alpha variant and now the Delta variant. Every time someone gets infected with SARS-CoV-2, there is a chance the virus could generate a more fit variant, which could then spread to others. With low overall vaccination coverage in Southern Africa, some have suggested global inequities of the supply of COVID vaccines may be responsible for the emergence of Omicron. End quote. In an interview with CNN, Michael Head, a senior research fellow in global health at the University of Southampton, said in reference to the Omicron variant, quote, It has probably emerged in another country and has been detected in South Africa, which has very, very good genomic sequencing capacity and capability. It might well be a consequence of an outbreak, probably in some part of sub-Saharan Africa, where there's not a huge amount of genomic surveillance going on and vaccination rates are low, end quote. And so there are a few things I want to highlight from all that. First, that we don't know exactly where the Omicron variant first appeared, only that by the time scientists in South Africa were able to identify the strain, it had already begun to spread around the world due to high volumes of international traffic through the area. As a result, it is extremely unlikely that the variant actually emerged there. It simply proved to be the perfect environment for it to spread rapidly due to the interactions between vaccinated travelers and the local population where vaccination rates are far lower. As the conversation article outlined, millions of virus particles are produced within the body when infected with COVID-19, and each and every one of those particles has the potential to mutate into a new variant. So when we have countries with huge numbers of unvaccinated, unprotected individuals, the question to be asking about variants like Omicron isn't if they'll develop, but when and where they'll develop, a question that's far easier to answer when you look at the vaccination rates of African nations. There are only six countries in all of Africa where the vaccination rate is above 70% with the overwhelming majority of them falling well below the 30% mark. And to be clear, this isn't due to some kind of anti-vax movement or vaccine hesitancy across the continent. Instead, it is a result of a distinct lack of access to vaccines. 
People who want to get vaccinated are only able to do so if there are enough doses available to distribute, but the reality for the majority of Africa is that the doses just aren't available. There are two main reasons as to why this is the case, the first being the hoarding of vaccines by wealthier nations. To quote from a recent Guardian article titled, A New COVID Variant is No Surprise When Rich Countries Are Hoarding Vaccines, by Gordon Brown, Quote, in June, Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, promised he and the G7 countries would use their surplus vaccines to immunize the whole world. In September, at a summit chaired by US President Biden, a December target of 40% vaccination was set for the 92 poorest countries. Two and a half months on, there is little chance of this target being met in at least 82 of them. By Thursday, the US had still delivered only 25% of the vaccines it promised. The arithmetic of failure in the rest of the world is even more embarrassing. According to Airfinity, the European Union has delivered only 19%, the UK just 11 and Canada just 5%. China and New Zealand have delivered over half of what was promised, but their pledges amounted to just 100 million and 1.6 million, respectively. Australia has just given 18% of what it offered, and Switzerland just 12 The result is that even now, only 3% of people in low-income countries are fully vaccinated, while the figure exceeds 60% in both high-income and upper-middle-income countries. Every day, for every one vaccine delivered as a first vaccine in the poorest countries, six times as many doses are being administered as third and booster vaccines in the richest parts of the world. This vaccine inequality is the main reason why the World Health Organization is predicting 200 million more cases on top of the 260 million so far. And after 5 million deaths of COVID, another 5 million are thought to be possible in the next year or more. What's most galling is that this policy failure is not because we are short of vaccines or manufacturing contracts to secure them. The problem is not now in production, 2 billion doses of vaccines are being manufactured every month, but in the unfairness of distribution, end quote. However, these policy failures do not stop with simply falling short on the delivery of promised vaccines. Some of you may be asking at this point, well, why don't these countries simply manufacture vaccines for themselves? And that's a fair question. The answer, however, is not so fair. Simply put, the American companies that developed the vaccines view them as another product in a long line of medications they produce, products which they own the rights to. Producing vaccines isn't just a matter of having the facilities and resources needed to manufacture them. You also need to purchase or be given the rights to do so, and these companies are far from eager to hand them out. As we've talked about on this show before, profit motivations are a major reason as to why access to housing is so limited in this country. Landlords are seen as business owners whose bottom lines must be protected instead of as providers of an essential service. This same issue of profits over people has decimated the U.S. healthcare system's ability to provide services to those in need. Instead, it caters to the wealthy, leaving millions without healthcare and subjecting those with access to massive amounts of medical debt. It is the same companies that charge nearly $100 for a vial of insulin available in Canada for just $10 that have been placed in charge of vaccinating the world, and they're in no rush to give up the rights to their hottest selling product. To quote now from the article, Rich Countries Must Stop Blocking the COVID Vaccine Patent Waiver, published last month by Al Jazeera, quote, The World Health Organization has called on governments to place human rights at the heart of their pandemic responses, including by ensuring universal access to COVID-19 vaccines, therapeutics, and health technologies. They are globally understood as public health goods, and access to them is part of the human right to health. 
Despite the repeated rhetorical references by heads of state to the right to health, some countries continue to oppose a waiver of intellectual property rights first put forward to the World Trade Organization in October 2020 in a proposal co-sponsored by 64 of its members and reportedly supported by many others. In effect, these countries are blocking attempts to universalize access to the know-how, technology, and materials required to manufacture COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics. While intellectual property rights are not the only reason for inequitable access to COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics, they are a significant barrier. Similarly, while a waiver is not the only means to tackle the lack of access to health technologies, it is an essential element in facilitating equitable access. If wealthier nations such as Canada, the UK and the EU, and especially the United States, continue to deny poorer countries access to essential vaccines, or at the very least, providing these nations with the rights and information to produce their own, then other variants like Omicron will continue to pop up and spread rapidly as vaccinated individuals travel the world assuming it's safe to be doing so. The more people worldwide that are vaccinated, the less likely it is that these variants can develop, but with Western leaders focusing their efforts within their own borders, providing third and even fourth doses now to their own citizens, when only 3% of people in poorer countries have received a second, there is almost zero chance that COVID-19 will ever be eradicated. A survey conducted by Nature.com, quote, asked more than 100 immunologists, infectious disease researchers, and virologists working on the coronavirus whether it could be eradicated. Almost 90% of respondents think that the coronavirus will become endemic, meaning that it will continue to circulate in pockets of the global population for years to come, end quote. As long as wealthy nations continue to ignore the need of all peoples around the world, we can never be sure that COVID-19 will disappear. And every time someone becomes infected there is a greater chance that a more resilient, faster spreading, and more deadly variant could come to be. So, to focus back in on Canada again, remembering that we as a nation are further behind in our commitment to provide vaccines than almost all other nations at just 5% of what we promised, it's time to examine what exactly our priorities are when it comes to foreign policy. To help gain some understanding in this area, I'm very excited to introduce this month's guests, a lifelong Kingstonian and co-founder of Kingston Peace Council, John Gallant. I'll let John explain a little more about what exactly Kingston Peace Council is and does in a moment, but the main reason I wanted to sit down with John this month is because of Peace Council's recent involvement with the No New Fighter Jets movement, having held a rally outside of Liberal MP Mark Gerritsen's office in late November. This movement is seeking to dissuade the Canadian government from their planned purchase of 88 new warplanes for a total price of over $77 billion. To quote directly from the movement's website, quote, This new generation of bomber jets will be designed to do the same thing the last batch did, carry bombs and missiles that kill civilians, disproportionately children, destroy critical infrastructure that leaves millions without safe drinking water or electricity, and to run environmentally costly training drills. This time they'll have added the terrifying capacity to carry nuclear weapons. Canada's current stock of fighter jets have spent the past few decades bombing Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, and Syria, prolonging violent conflict and contributing to massive humanitarian and refugee crises. These operations had a deadly toll on human life and have nothing to do with ensuring security for Canada. Even former Deputy Minister of Defense Charles Nixon stated that Canada does not face any credible threats and new Canadian fighters are not required to protect Canada's populace or sovereignty, end quote. So to talk more about this movement, Canada's foreign policy, and everything else we've discussed so far, please enjoy these highlights from my conversation with John.
Okay, well, uh, thank you for having me. I'm uh, John, I'm, I'm here from Kingston Peace Council. Uh, we are a chapter of, a, of the Canadian Peace Congress, which is a national peace organization. Uh, we've been here for three years uh, in, in kind of various capacities. Uh, since the pandemic has started, uh, I would say a lot of uh, issues and things beforehand uh, are, have been kind of magnified uh, in some ways, but I, I think the argument can also be made that uh, some things have also kind of fallen to the wayside that are, are less immediate. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, housing is kind of the big thing, but um, it's, it's, there's just been a strain on absolutely everything. And uh, it's, I guess you could say, you know, contradictions are being elevated and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of high time that uh, private organizations step in or, or clubs or NGOs or so on. So can you tell us a little bit about what Peace Council and the, the Peace Congress are and kind of what role they play in, in their communities and um, kind of talk a little bit about like what made you want to, to start the Kingston chapter of the of Peace Council and uh, if there was kind of anything about being in Kingston that specifically kind of inspired you to, to start organizing in this way? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, Kingston Peace Council, like I said, is a chapter of the Canadian Peace Congress. Uh, the Canadian Peace Congress uh, uh, answers to the World Peace Council. Uh, they recently had their meeting, uh, you know, a couple couple of weeks ago. Uh, but it's just it's part of a global network of peace organizations. Uh, the goal is, uh, you know, a more just foreign policy and addressing a lot of the, you know, profound shortcomings in the way that Canada functions on an international level. Mm -hmm. uh, on a, you know, on a local level, uh, we we work with other organizations. Uh, public education, I think, is is of the utmost importance on matters of peace and things because a lot of this subject matter can be quite complicated. And, and I think that there's a tendency to not always know where you could fit in and make a difference. So to, to a great extent, that is our, our goal is, or one of our roles is to sort of, um, you know, make this easier to do and, and, and play this out on a local level. You were kind of talking about uh, making it easier for people to kind of fit into the peace movement and, and kind of working on a local level. Um, peace, obviously, um, a kind of word that can mean a lot of things. Um, I think in this kind of context, you're talking kind of peace versus war, um, especially in terms of you're talking about um, promoting for better foreign policy on behalf of Canada. Can you talk a little bit more about what the, the peace movement is, what its kind of goals are and what shape that takes in Kingston? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, getting involved with this stuff in Kingston, uh, one of the first things that uh, the the head of the Canadian Peace Congress, Miguel, said to us when we had a meeting uh, to get this set up in Kingston, he said it's it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like going to Alberta and and saying you're against oil, uh, having a peace organization in in a military and, and prison town is uh, you know a little bit dicey, but it's. Um, you know, I, Kingston has a significant military presence, but I, I you know, we, we have not been the first people here uh, in that regard. There's been other groups like uh, Peace Quest Kingston and things like that, hmm. that I think have more of a public education component and then their sort of actions and things related to Hiroshima Day and uh, climate change and how militarism relates to that. Uh, and we certainly do all those things. 
but I, I, I think that there's a bit more of an imperative to, to do a bit more and, and kind of reach certain strata of Kingston that uh, would not otherwise be. And that's why we wanted to get involved with, uh, with the housing struggle and, and kind of donations to Kingston's unhoused community, which grows by the minute. Uh, so, yeah. So since this episode is kind of taking a focus on the, the pandemic specifically um, dealing with COVID-19, from the perspective of the peace movement, how would you judge the response of our government from the local level to the federal um, in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, uh, funny you should say that. I've actually got a fair bit to say uh, on that topic. Uh, I, there have been issues. You know, I now people may say, you know, I can't say, you know, this is, you know, you're just highlighting the negatives or, or whatever, but I don't think that a lot of these things can go un, unanswered. So I'll start off with, uh, with the defense policy and everything and kind of the military side of it, just because we are a peace organization, but uh, mm-hmm. we are by no means limited to that, I would say. Uh, the, the No New Fighter Jets campaign has been is kind of an example of sort of useless spending and, and kind of things we, we don't really need. Uh, so the life cycle cost of the fighter jets is $77 billion. Wow. Uh, they, so that's higher than previous estimates. Now, these are public funds that can be used on things like ho- uh, housing, healthcare, infrastructure, uh, and, and so on. And, and this is something of you that's actually shared by the Canadian Peace Congress. And that's why we have a coalition across Canada kind of involved with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, something else uh just a bit of background regarding that. The 2015 Liberal campaign uh, proclaimed that they wouldn't buy the F-35 bomber, uh, which has been completely reneged upon. Uh, Saab has dropped out. And I think it's looking like Lockheed Martin will be the main one. Uh, In 2015, there was a forum poll that showed 38% of Canadians supported the purchase. Uh, I think in light of the pandemic, that's gotten, though I I sincerely hope that that's, uh, you know, that number has shrunk a fair bit because, Mm you know, these issues are being brought to the forefront, things like climate change and what have you. Uh, it's, you know, this isn't exactly going to improve things. Uh, the Canadian forces as of uh, April 20, April 13, 2020, just have suspended a propaganda campaign during the pandemic that was uh, aimed at the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was launched by Canadian Joint Operations Command uh, to strengthen, strengthen confidence in government and suppress social opposition. Uh, this includes things like, uh, you know, tra- tracking activists and so on, uh, you know, all euphemisms, of course. And this was inspired by operations on uh, villagers in Afghanistan after 2001. Uh, so there, this has been something that was done in the field and they, they come back and want to do this uh, on Canadians. Uh, it's important to recognize as well that this was neither requested nor authorized by the Trudeau government. So this was completely unprompted. Uh, like I said, it was uncovered after investigation and suspended in April uh, of 2020. But since then, uh, according to writer, uh, according to people like David Pugliese, who is the defense critic for the Ottawa citizen, hmm. uh, public affairs and military intelligence officers are seeking to expand these operations uh, once again. And official Canadian Armed Forces assurances against this are now meaningless. Uh, and activists like Tamara Lawrence who is from uh, Voice of Women for Peace, you know, has said this, it's all sort of just below board. Uh, take literally everything that you will hear with a grain of salt uh, because it's, it's, you know, yes, there are things happening during the pandemic that uh, uh, were, were just as bad as we thought. Um, on an international level, Canada's vaccine policy uh, has in some ways been a reflection of, the, of its colonial history. 
certainly with the Omicron variant in South Africa. Uh, this is something that has been written about extensively by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Uh, the recently, if you know, folks are calling for you know an example of this. Folks are calling this kind of the African variant, which is uh, right up there with, you know, China flu or, or whatever. It's completely inappropriate. And I don't think you need to be an expert to understand that. Mm -hmm. uh, Canada has failed to support the WTO vaccine patent waiver uh, to the chagrin of countries like India that have kind of spoken out about this and, and are trying to kind of get these get the patents waived. Uh, at the moment, we have purchased enough vaccines to inoculate every Canadian five times versus 6% of Africans are fully vaccinated, although I'm sure that number has changed by now. Hmm. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got lots more here, but uh, it, it just, you know, uh, I, there's been there's been issues at really every level, uh, you know, certainly internally, uh, it, you know, domestically in, in Ontario and stuff, the Ford government has not really been issuing paid, oh, they weren't budging on paid sick leave and now they're only offering three days. Uh, you know, I, this really, COVID, this pandemic requires, you know, two weeks. Uh, that's that's simply unrealistic. Uh, you know, there's not been clarity on CERB. I know government benefits have been extended during the pandemic, but, uh, you know, that's something that's kind of being sorted out as it's being implemented. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there's, there's a lot there. You talked about the Canada's vaccine policy in terms of, um, you know, other countries um, reflecting um, its kind of colonial history and tendencies. Um, is this, do you think that the response to the COVID-19 pandemic has been in, informed um, by these sort of capitalist forces in Canada, that this is the kind of main agenda, protecting the economy, protecting capital uh, over human lives? Is that something that you see kind of taking place in Canada today? Uh, well, it certainly seems that way. And then there are entire political parties dedicated to this. I, uh, it just, but sure. it certainly seems like it. I just, there's been a lot of kind of uncertainty surrounding that. And I, I think that there's an imperative to organize and, uh, and, and build relationships amongst, uh, well, amongst the masses. And kind of, if ever you're looking for a time to be involved and, uh, and kind of make a difference in your community, this would be it. Uh, because, you know, I, I, the alternative is, is considerably worse. And uh, there's been kind of lists accumulated of the, of, of the things that have been rolled back by uh, the Ford government. And uh, yeah, it, it just, it's, it's very upsetting to see. So to kind of, to talk about the, the No New Fighter Jets campaign again, you held a rally in, in November outside of Mark Garrison's office. Um, I recall seeing a sign uh, at that rally that I believe had a, a slogan on it, something similar to um, stockpile face masks, not fighter jets. Um, you talked about how Canada's military spending is taking money away from housing and healthcare. Is this really a, a sort of one-to-one -one transaction? Is it um, realistic to say that these funds can be reappropriated into these things? I mean, how much of Canada's taxpayer dollars get put into military spending every year? Uh, well, it's... I, I think it's absolutely possible. Uh, I, I really do. Uh, let me see here. It, it just the again. These are these are public funds, and a good chunk of what uh, Kingston Peace Council has been, you know, trying to do and, and get involved in is understand that um, uh, is that yeah, like this can be done. I, one of the goals that we have been kind of establishing is is to join these things. And, uh, and, and kind of understand that, that these things are, are themselves related. Uh, military expenditure in Canada is expected to reach 
21,600 US dollars, a million US dollars by the end of 2021. Uh, so that was just this past year. Uh, if that's been, you know, tied to inflation, uh, it's adjusted for inflation, pardon me, it'll be considerably more, uh, certainly in the coming year. So we have a responsibility to, to kind of address these things. There's a, a warship purchase that's planned as well. Uh, Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War has been having demonstrations where they have a, kind of a great big check uh, for the for the purchases and they're standing outside the, the MP's office going, you know, you can, you're certainly more than welcome to come out and tear this up any day you want. But as it stands, you know, uh, all of this spending, it has bipartisan support. It's supported by Liberals, Conservatives and NDPs. Uh, to some extent, you know, the NDPs in their shadow cabinet have folks that are speaking out against this stuff. But um, it just, a lot of it is used to, a lot of it is with the intention of getting us into war with uh, China. Uh, folks are obviously quite concerned about, you know, Russia and so on. And at the moment, we're, they're trying to kind of draw us into, NATO is trying to draw us into a conflict at the Ukraine uh, and Russian border, uh, which, you know, the, the ideal solution to that conflict would be a peaceful settlement between both sides. I, I, it is something that under no circumstances one side is to blame because it's it's the blame is very much on both mm -hmm. for sure um so you talked about this kind of intelligence uh program that is kind of taking place against activists in canada and you mentioned that part of the idea behind that is to place more trust into the into the government and into their programs um you also mentioned china of course they're COVID policy has created a situation where their total case numbers, their total deaths are comparable to a smaller province here in Canada. And of course, this is the single most populous nation in the world that we're talking about. Do you think that government trust is something that plays into why there is pushback against masks and vaccinations in, in countries like Canada and the US and in parts of Europe? Um, is there just a kind of lack of trust uh, to our government officials here that, that just isn't um, present in uh, countries like China or, or Cuba? I absolutely do, because a lot of these countries uh, are certainly, certainly the ones kind of in the, in the periphery, I guess, to use a more sterile term. But yeah, countries like China and then Venezuela and so on, they protected their people from the outset during the pandemic. This was something that was addressed sort of immediately. It wasn't... Uh, you know, they didn't wait and sort of, uh, you know, vacillate and, and not be able to make up their mind. Meanwhile, people are dying and, and long-term care homes are, are remain privatized and and then COVID is just running rampant in them. And, and prisons in, in Kingston, for example, the, the numbers that were given for COVID were, were largely off because they weren't taking into account the the numbers of, uh, of cases in prison. So I guess I, I think that the anti-masking stuff comes from you know us not really the the first impulse it didn't really seem like was to was to protect us outright uh there was an uncomfortable amount of uncertainty and there still is i think uh in terms of the kind of world we're going to face in the next year or so uh with regard to the pandemic and everything mm -hmm. um so these countries that we've been talking about china you mentioned venezuela cuba as well as they're doing much better than we are here um these are also nations that whether it's more recently, in the case of Venezuela, or historically like Cuba and China, these are socialist nations. Do you think that is that just a coincidence, or is there something about this difference in economic thinking, this different system that they use that is creating better results in terms of the pandemic? 
I, I think, well, yes, and uh, I, I also think some of this is in spite of the, the sanctions and uh, issues related to vaccine patents, certainly in countries like India, uh, mm-hmm. where they have, you know, states like uh, states like Bengal and, and Kerala, where they're actually able to marshal uh, uh, workers to build field hospitals. And, and certainly in the case of China, they built sort of, I think it was something like two hospitals in two weeks, and they were all temporary. Uh, and and wow. imagine if we were able to repurpose buildings in, uh, you know, Kingston or anything for those services. I, I you know, the Health Science Center uh, up until I think recently was, was overflowing with people. Uh, granted, the, the symptoms from the Omicron variant are not as severe, but mm-hmm. it's still something that we have to be very careful about with our loved ones, especially if they're you know immunocompromised or they're older. Absolutely. Um, there is kind of a lot of talk recently about COVID kind of leaving the pandemic stage and becoming more of what you could say is an endemic, something that is present in in human life now uh, similar to the influenza um, outbreak of i believe it was 1918 which of now is of course flu season is something we're all familiar with um in a world where covid is something that we would see as a seasonal or, or regional outbreaks um is this something that do you th- we think could have been avoided is this something that could still be avoided i i don't know that it could i mean i i think it well, it could potentially, you know, there are some serious changes that need to be made and they need to be made at such a high level that I, I don't know that they would be able to come about quickly. Uh, I, I think, you know, starting with things like, uh, you know, housing and, and food security and, and things like that in Canada. Uh, absolutely. I, I, you know, I'm coming at this from a peace organization. So I would say mm-hmm. re, redirecting funds. Uh, away from uh, the military, away from ballooning, uh, you know, police budgets and things and putting them towards more immediate things like housing and, and so on is is the real thing that needs to be done. And there needs to be, you know, stronger protections for for workers and so on. Uh, and it, at times it, it sort of seems like this stuff was was always meant to be left to kind of on the grassroots organizations and so on to, to pick up the pieces. It, it sort of seems like that was that was always the intention in a way. Uh, and I, I you know would not at all be surprised if that was some of the rationale that went into it. Hmm. But uh, yeah. I mean, we have Joe Biden, obviously this is America we're talking about as opposed to Canada coming out today saying that this is not a, a federal problem to solve. I'm paraphrasing, it's a, a state's issue and then getting on a helicopter to go on vacation. Um, is this a similar attitude that we see in Canada? Is, is I mean, you mentioned that this is kind of the pieces are being left to local organizations to pick up. Is it are we seeing our, our leaders kind of pushing this further down the line that it's not a federal problem, it's not a provincial problem, it's not a local problem, that our leaders are just trying to kind of shove off this responsibility and pass it to the next person in line? Uh, I, I, I think that argument could be made sometimes, but I also think that the response, the response to the pandemic has certainly been there and there's been sort of enthusiasm for it. But I, I doesn't. I don't really feel like anything substantive has been done other than responding to the pandemic. I, I don't know that there's been anything sort of put in place uh, for you know worker protections or or related to you know defunding unnecessary budgets. 
uh, like the like bloated military spending and then so on. It just some of it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. Some of it, a lot of it is just very well contradictory in the way that you know essential services are are open and some of them are closed. You go into a grocery store only to find out that uh, you know certain parts of it you're not allowed to walk into to buy things. And mm-hmm. uh, that to me sounds a bit it's like a, a policy sort of incoherent a little bit. Uh, just because there's so much of it is kind of overlapping uh, in the hopes that it will it will provide all the protections that are needed. But some of it just feels kind of arbitrary and, and doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Absolutely. Um, so to kind of go back to something you mentioned earlier, Canada and its allies, be it America and NATO, uh, etc., do seem to be kind of gearing up for a potential war or conflict of some kind with China, um, authoritarianism, totalitarianism, these sort of uh, buzzwords get thrown a lot around a lot as kind of cited as reasons for this. Could you be able to kind of speak a little bit about what you kind of think uh, the reasons that we're being told to get ready for these potentially upcoming conflicts are? Well, um, I, I think that certainly in the case of NATO, it's a collective security organization that has, uh, you know, a bunch of different companies in it that they that troops are pledged to it. Uh, but it also had been, I think, discussed by academics that it, NATO in some ways is, is facing obsolescence. It's, it's becoming obsolete. It, um, you know, requires, requires, well, enemies to function. So in this case, it's, you know, we, we often say the Cold War is over, but uh, mm. in some ways it's just sort of they're trying to kind of prop up the corpse at this point. Uh, and certainly in the case of, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian military has been emboldened by Western support. Uh, this includes arming of uh, white supremacists and so on. Uh, the examples of this include the Azov Battalion. Uh, related to uh, sort of uh, the last five, ten years or so, Ukraine has been sort of learning to play by NATO's rules so they can get into, they can kind of become a member. Uh, but I, I, I don't think that it would be fair to say that this is 100% on the side of uh uh, you know, the doing of NATO and, and Canada, because uh, right, in, right in the case of Russia in the Donbass region, uh, there have been issues with ultra-nationalists and, uh, well, Nazis on both sides of the border. So the ideal outcome to this, for this, uh, I would think is, is a peace settlement between all parties. Uh, I think there needs to be a moratorium on arms supplies to the Ukraine. Any buildup of structural violence is, uh, is intolerable. Uh, you know, the U.S. U.S. 2020 defense budget was 722 billion and its international affairs budget was 60 billion. So, uh, you know, a lot of this was being pledged to NATO. Uh, you know, this is coming from folks in the Ukrainian pacifist organization there in Ukraine at the moment. There are peace groups working kind of on this. And there's a push to, you know, develop a knowledge based peace culture, uh, the peace in all ways, uh, you know, technology. Uh, philosophy, uh, you know, just in in day-to-day things. Uh, It's also important to note that Ukraine has major gas pipelines that belong to Russia uh, and they feed through Eastern Europe. Uh, So there are corporate interests at play. Uh, The third, there's in Toronto in 2019, there's the third Ukraine uh, reform conference with uh, the head of state at the time, Zelensky. Uh, They have the largest supply of lithium in Eastern Europe. yeah, it just it's it's exactly what it looks like, and uh, we're we're kind of in a place where we don't we're not I don't we don't want to be dragged into another conflict. It just it makes no sense. 
thank you for having me. Uh, you know, shout out to the Cataract Union of Tenants, the Tim Bach Club, uh, 350 Kingston, all the groups that are working very hard here. Uh, please check out our ongoing GoFundMe uh, to raise uh, raise money for services for Kingston's unhoused community. Uh, we've raised over $10,000 at this point, and, and it's continuing to move steadily. Uh, we're looking to have a general meeting at the end of January. I will be putting out a sign-up for that within the next few weeks on our social media. That is uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Kingston Peace Council. And uh, please check out the Canadian Peace Congress. They're doing incredible work, and uh, you know we'll continue to. once again to John for sitting down with me over the holidays to have that conversation. Before we wrap up this month's episode, I just want to return to a few of the things that came up during that interview that I think deserve a little more attention. To pivot away from the conversation around vaccines specifically, it's important we also talk about some of the other measures that the Canadian government as well as other countries have been implementing, namely lockdowns and worker protections. As it came up a few times in the interview, I think it's best to use China for comparison as at this point in time they have handled the pandemic far better than any other country. Throughout this entire pandemic, and for reference, all of the statistics I'm about to quote are coming from worldometers.info, which for anyone interested who isn't already familiar with the site, is a great resource for pure numbers and data about global COVID cases. China, the single most populous nation in the world, with a population of over 1.4 billion people, has recorded just shy of 102,000 total cases of COVID-19 and 4,600 deaths. In Canada, with a population of just 38 million, we've had 2,130,000 cases with over 30,000 deaths. Both countries have very high rates of vaccination, so clearly there must be something else China is doing to protect its people that our government is not. To really illustrate this stark contrast, in Kingston alone, there are seven individuals in a city of 140,000 currently being treated in intensive care units, meaning these individuals are severe cases requiring more well, intensive care. At this same moment, in a country of, again, 1.4 billion people, only 15 cases have been designated as severe. That's only two times as many people in a country with 10,000 times the population. In all of China right now, there are only 2,500 active cases. At the rate cases arising currently in Kingston, we could be facing the same amount, if not more, by the end of January. So why is this? What steps has the Chinese government taken that haven't been implemented here? The answer is China's very strict COVID-0 policy, meaning it is the intention of China to ensure that not a single case of COVID-19 is present within its borders. In China, if a single case of COVID is identified within a region, Lockdowns and mandatory quarantines are immediately put into place in the area, only lifted upon confirmation that no further risk of transmission is present. This is a massive difference in domestic policy when it comes to managing the pandemic. Here in Kingston and across the rest of the province, Doug Ford's provincial government has refused to take any lockdown measures seriously. The experience of most Ontarians throughout this pandemic has been a constant back and forth between lockdowns and reopenings, 
Whenever things seem like they might be getting back to something we might call normal, a new wave of restrictions announced, always differing slightly from the previous rules, leaving many of us feeling confused and anxious. Kingston has been put into a state of lockdown when less than 20 total cases are present in the region, only to reopen with cases closer to 100. As John said, the COVID policy here in Ontario was often rather contradictory. We're told to remain home and isolate, while the majority of businesses remain open to the public, of course with reduced capacity, but the fact of the matter is, if bars and restaurants remain open, people are going to assume it's safe for them to be going out. We are hit with mixed messages and contradictory statements on an almost daily basis. Workers in Canada are asked to put their safety and their lives at risk every day they spend at their jobs, and if they do happen to get sick, be it COVID or anything else, they are denied the paid leave they need in order to isolate themselves as the government tells them to. In fact, as I have been recording this episode, the Ford government has announced that the isolation period for those exposed to COVID-19 has been reduced to just five days from 14, as, and I quote, it is less burdensome for employers, and in doing so has essentially confirmed beyond any shadow of a doubt that it is the economy and the bottom line of Canada's largest corporations that these policies have been catered to. The reality for many workers here is that they have had or will have to make the tough decision to either look after themselves or risk unemployment. In China, and in many other socialist countries around the world, this is simply not the case. In fact, it is the opposite. When the Chinese government makes the decision to lock down an area, people are not expected to continue working as to them, lockdowns mean lockdowns, not just reduce capacity and shorter hours at your favorite restaurant. People are provided for with an emphasis placed on their health-related needs, not the so-called needs of the economy. Again, as John mentioned, when China's healthcare system was reaching its limits, people were put to work with the necessary PPE constructing temporary field hospitals. In Canada, people with milder symptoms are told to stay home and care for themselves so as not to burden our hospitals. If the Canadian government was truly focused on eliminating COVID-19 and ensuring a swift and just recovery from the pandemic, the necessary funding for such projects would be diverted from military spending and invested in healthcare and housing. But we've seen no such policy being implemented. Instead, Canada continues to fund white supremacist movements halfway around the world while completely ignoring their commitments to vaccinating poorer countries. These are not isolated issues. They are one in the same. And on that note, thank you all so much for listening. Next month on the show, we're going to be getting back to our ongoing conversations about the housing crisis here in Kingston, where I'm happy to announce I'll be joined by several workers serving in various positions at the Integrated Care Hub to talk about their incredible facility and the amazing work they do there to help meet the needs of those in Kingston without homes and living with addictions. Until then, my name is Sebastian Valancourt, and I'll talk to you next time on Crisis Watch Kingston.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.